0: Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired.
1: This is World Today.
2: Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Coming up, China and Russia agreed to deepen their strategic security cooperation. And we will take a look at the debate over the Ukraine crisis at the ongoing UN General Assembly. Azerbaijan launches a military operation against Nagorno-Karabakh, demanding surrender. And the UK opens a new chapter in terms of digital regulation as the UK Parliament passes online safety bill. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. First of all, China and Russia have agreed to further strengthen security cooperation, defend true multilateralism, and promote a more fair global governance system. Wang Yi, CPC's foreign affairs chief, on Tuesday co-chaired a new round of China-Russia strategic security consultation with Nikolai Patrushev, who is the secretary of Russia's Security Council. Wang Yi, who is also China's foreign minister, said China is willing to work with Russia to follow the consensus reached by the two heads of state and make greater contribution to the national security of the two countries. And for his part, Petrushchev called for closer policy coordination to counter what he described as Western efforts to contain Russia and China. So joining us now on the line is Dr. David Martin-Jones, visiting professor with the War Studies Department, King's College, London. Welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. So, Professor Jones, in your understanding, what are China and Russia's um, common shared security interests uh, right now?
3: Well, I think, um, you know, they are quite different in, in, in many ways. I mean, China has a, a much more um, significant global presence economically and politically than Russia at the moment, who is engaged in a rather attritional conflict in Ukraine. But I think both um, both states are concerned with preserving what they see as their own internal resilience and maintaining their Um, historic spheres of influence in terms of the regional power role that they have historically played.
2: Mm, Okay. So uh, when we talk about, say, this uh, strategic uh, security consultation, it is, um, in principle, an annual mechanism between Beijing and Moscow. It has been in place since 2005, So uh, do you think the security cooperation, coordination, and consultation between Beijing and Moscow over the years have um, contributed positively to the stability in regions beyond Russia and China, for example, in in Central Asia, in in, in East Asia, etc., etc.?
3: I think to some extent that's true. You know, the Shanghai cooperation... Uh, arrangement Uh, is one of the biggest um, uh, kind of multilateral security arrangements uh, in the world. So there there has been um, a sense that, um, you know, China and Russia have have, um, established a a framework within Central Asia that has um, contributed to stability in the region, although As we see today in Nagorno-Karabakh, there are areas that are still um, problematic here.
2: Mm, Yeah, actually Nagorno-Karabakh is a story that we're going to discuss later in our show today, but that's Mm -hmm. another subject. But back to our discussion regarding uh, Mm -hmm. the relations between Beijing and Moscow, Yeah, of course, Professor, you you mentioned about the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. So in your perception or in your observation, do you see any difference, fundamental difference between, say, SEO grouping and, uh, say, organizations like NATO? Because both of them are perceived as uh, security-focused, right?
3: yeah I, I suppose the you know the, the the security issue for both sides is in terms of um trying to um uh, create a sense that um there's a stable regional order and from the perspective of, of russia and china the order seems to be threatened by the west um I think this is, uh, you know, to some extent problematic, but I think the West itself sees itself as under threat from a rising China and um, a continuingly, you know, uh, provocative Russia in terms of the Ukraine. So I think the the position of both sides is um, a dialogue of, Sometimes a lot of misunderstanding uh, between what the West is seeking and the security, cons- the legitimate security c- concerns of both Russia and China. And at the moment, the the um, the ability to talk intelligently between both sides has, is is at a uh, a low point.
2: Mm, yeah, a low point indeed. But uh, I guess from Russia's perspective, as we have heard from the senior Kremlin official, there is a need for closer policy coordination to counter Western efforts to contain both Russia and China. Um, In your your observation of Chinese Mm. foreign policy, do you think Beijing would share this perspective? And uh, by the way you know sometimes in the west mm. russia china cooperation is perceived as a sort of anti west coalition that is aimed at you know overthrowing or challenging the existing international order but what is your what is your perspective professor
3: well i think that, well, that's well it's a very good question um i think um you know inevitably as a result of um Western foreign policy, which has been, um, I would say, somewhat simplistic, both in its conduct towards the Ukraine and its um, policies towards China, um, that um, inevitably, as a result of um, the attempts to decouple Western economies from China supply lines, would seem you know, threatening to China as does NATO's policy towards the Ukraine seem to um, you know, endangers what Russia sees as its own security interests. So it was kind of inevitable um, as a result of Western, uh, two elements of Western policy. One on its um, a concern about uh, equalizing trade with China, and two in its conduct of its um, uh, support of Ukraine Mm. that it would inevitably lead to closer Russia and Chinese cooperation, Mm. as they would see themselves as um, kind of forced together by, I mean, particularly by some of Biden's rhetoric, which has not been very helpful.
2: Mm. So actually, during this uh, Tuesday meeting in Moscow, uh, Petrushchev, this Russian official, has reaffirmed invariable uh, Russian support for Beijing's policy on issues related to Taiwan, Xinjiang, and Hong Kong. Um, we understand these are all internal affairs of China. Why do you think Russia stands with China on these issues?
3: Well, I think um, it stands with, with China because it assumes that China will support it in its continuing um, uh view of Ukraine as its own internal measure. So um, it's thinking on China's um, uh, idea of itself as um, uh, that Xinjiang or Hong Kong are internal Chinese matters fits with the Russian view that uh, Ukraine is really an internal issue for the Russian Federation.
2: Well, but I guess the Ukraine is not really, <laughs> I don't know, but probably, you know, parallel during, say, between Ukraine and Taiwan, mm-hmm. that's not, that's something perceived as uh, problematic from Beijing's point of view, I guess. So in the exactly. meantime,
3: yeah, no, I think that, that's, yeah, yeah, sure.
2: Mm, okay. So Professor, shifting Sorry. gears a little bit, in the meantime, we understand Russia's Minister of Economic Development, also held in-depth discussion with Chinese Commerce Minister Wang Wentao here in Beijing on Tuesday uh, regarding deepening trade and economic cooperation between China and Russia. So do you think the economic ties between the two sides could uh, in turn enhance their uh, strategic cooperation or security cooperation?
3: Yeah, well, I think, you know, um, obviously the, the more they, the, you know, China and Russia trade, and of course, you know, Russia has lots of energy resources that China finds, you know, very useful and productive, and Russia has been cut off from uh, European markets. So it logically makes closer to closer trading and um, economic relations, which In turn, you know, good trade relationships usually facilitate good security relations. So um, the, um, you know, the way in which the war in Ukraine and the post-COVID policies of the West have come,
0: you know, have evolved,
3: have really created the dynamics for a much closer uh, Russian and China relationship.
2: Mm. Thank you, as always, for joining us. That was Dr. David Martin-Jones, visiting professor at the War Studies Department, King's College, London. You are listening to World Today. Stay tuned.
4: Washington is attempting to increase the number of UN Security Council permanent members to dilute influence of China and Russia. How realistic is it? Germany, Japan and India have been wanting a permanent membership of the council for decades. Why haven't they succeeded? Can we expect an enlarged U.N. Security Council with six, seven or even more permanent members in the foreseeable future? If so, what would it mean for the world order? Find out the answers to these questions and more on this week's Chat Lounge, wherever you get your podcasts and on CGTN Radio.
2: You're listening to World Today, I'm Han in Beijing. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has called on world leaders to show unity in the face of Russia's military operation in Ukraine. Zelensky made the remark on Tuesday at a UN General Assembly meeting in New York, accusing Russia of weaponizing food and energy issues. U.S. President Joe Biden has struck a similar tone in his own speech to the U.N. General Assembly. The war in Ukraine, for your information, has figured prominently on the first day of the high-level U.N. general debate. Iranian President Abraham Raisi has accused America of fanning the flames of violence in Ukraine, saying he is in favor of peace in Ukraine. In the meantime, Brazilian President Luiz Inacio Lula de Selva has called for negotiations to end the conflict, saying no solution will be lasting if it is not based on dialogue. So joining us now on the line is Pavel Fagenhauer, uh, a Moscow based independent political analyst. Welcome back. Uh, nice
5: to have for you to have me.
2: So first of all, regarding this call by Zelensky as well as by um, Joe Biden for world leaders to show unity against Russia over the Ukraine conflict or crisis, in your understanding, how many world leaders attending this year's UN General Assembly meetings would resonate with uh, this particular call?
5: Uh, Well, the conflict or the war in Ukraine has been going as well in its second year, soon to be maybe third year of conflict. So the lines uh, have been set, not only in Ukraine, but also in the world. Those who support Ukraine, support Ukraine. Those who support Russia, support Russia. Those who are neutral are neutral. And basically no additional rhetoric coming from the UN uh, General Assembly special high level meeting in September is going to change much. Mm. It's important as a PR goes, but it's not going to change. Nations act in their own self interest. If there are changes in positions, and sometimes they happen, they are influenced by others than simply um, calls on uh, coming from uh, the tribune of the of the united nations
2: Mm. so by the way do you think um abraham raissi iran's president uh had a point when he criticized uh, the united states for fanning the flames of violence in ukraine
5: well a point yes i mean it's clear that if uh the west did not support ukraine so massively as it has Uh, the war would have ended a long time ago Uh, ukraine maybe would have continued some kind of resistance low level on a kind of guerrilla basis but not an organized right now like they're fighting basically on par with great russia and that is yes but it's not only of course the united states it's also of course a lot of other western nations and in europe Mm -hmm. which actually believe that this uh, conflict is their conflict to a large extent
2: Mm. so I mean of course Iran is uh, geopolitically close to Russia so I guess uh, the stance of uh, Iran or the stance of the Iranian leader Iranian president on this issue on the Ukraine conflict might be seen as a pro-Russian one but I guess uh, like I mentioned in my introduction the position of Brazilian President Lula da Selva is probably more representative of more countries in the wider Global South community. So why do you think since conflict broke out in Ukraine in February last year, most uh, developing countries across the Global South have taken a sort of um, neutrality or neutral position regarding this war, despite the lobby and Trump offensive Launched by launched towards them by the West, and in general, do you think there is a West against the rest of phenomenon when we talk about how different countries respond to the Ukraine crisis?
5: Well, many in Europe, you're in, uh, many nations and ruling uh, elites believe that uh, there's a threat that the, the conflict in Ukraine is a direct threat to their nations, to their national interests. And that's why they act. Um, countries uh, further on out in the global south, in Africa, in Latin America, uh, they don't see any real threat coming from this conflict. I mean by the R- Russian tanks blowing in or something, nothing of the sort. But of course, they also they see that this conflict is impeding uh, world trade, the finances, the sanctions, the trade in uh, gas and oil and other commodities, And that's why they are basically not only neutral, but they also want this war to end as soon as possible. That is in their uh, clear national interests. Uh, but there is no, if there is a coalition supporting Ukraine, the so called Ramstein agreements. Mm-hmm over 50 nations there is no uh, kind of anti-western uh, agree, um, uh, alliance in the global south there again every nation acts in its own self-interest and of course in many regions of the world i like can say in western africa there's right now the problem of the niger and the coup there and that's more important to them than ukraine really mm. and uh, so that so self-interest rules nations and that's how, how it is but of course Now, many of these nations in the South already have two times on General Assemblies voted for a resolution uh, condemning Russia. So that means, well, they are neutral, but uh, they're more a bit disinterested and want this war, of course, to end. That's what everyone wants.
2: Mm. So with regard to some of the specific, you know, detailed issues surrounding the Ukraine crisis. What do you think are some of the specific issues over which world leaders might be able to reach some consensus or some general consensus in principle? And on the other hand, what do you think are the issues where even a general consensus is impossible?
5: Well, everyone, as I said, wants this war to end. Uh, It's a terrible war, and it's taking lives, and it's detrimental to world... Uh, peace and uh, world economy, and actually has it though a bit remote right now, but still the threat of um, it escalating into a nuclear actually conflict because one of the par- uh, par- warring parties is a nuclear nation, a nuclear superpower actually Russia. So everyone was, would be agreed on that, but uh, uh, other things, and especially uh, what's the formula? if not a piece of a a more or less permanent ceasefire, cease secession of hostilities. Right now, everyone is divided. There are different opinions. And uh, those who try to mediate, like China, um, uh, the uh, Mm -hmm. African nations, the Brazilian president, Lula da Silva, the Holy See right now are more or less frustrated because... Uh, They see that there is not that much room for compromise, at least for the time being. That will have to depend on what happens on the ground. What happens on the ground in Ukraine and other maybe parts of the world, but primarily in Ukraine, is going to be decisive.
2: Mm. Okay. So, by the way, in your understanding, would you see um, uh, the Ukraine crisis as a watershed moment for? say that not only the United States, but the larger Western um, community or the Western bloc, um, in in, in prompting them to realize that, okay, actually there are so many developing countries in the global south that don't stand with us when we we talk about a very significant, a so-called significant security issue. Do you see that watershed moment?
5: No, well, I don't really see that happening right now. Uh, what's really happening is a kind of unification mm. of, um, of the West behind the United States, though in the United States itself, the Ukrainian issue is an issue of contention between, of internal politics between um, Republicans, especially isolationist leading Republicans and Democrats. And, of course, in the democratic camp, they are also kind of uh, very left-wing figures that are also not very happy about the American involvement. But in the global sea, uh, uh, scene there, we see a unification. Mm-hmm. I mean, a threat made NATO, streamlined NATO, streamlined other nations into following the United States uh, as they did during the height of the Cold War. Uh, That's there. That most likely, when the conflict ends, this um, superficial unity is going to also begin to dissipate. But that's right now what's defined. Uh, The global south, well, they're neutral, and well, they are not really that important. They're important when right now in the General Assembly there's going to be again a resolution condemning russia and there's going to be a lot of lobbying for them different nations to vote Hmm. but when that ends there's well they're not really directly involved they don't have that much influence on the conflict so i don't think that in the west right now uh, everyone they're really uh, uh, that much worried Hmm. about what's happening in the uh, global south they're more worried what's happening, say, in the United States in coming elections. If there's going to be, again, another presidency by um, uh, uh, Mr. Trump, that's going to be maybe a big, much bigger big problem for them.
2: Mm. So very briefly, we, sh- we still have about 30 seconds for this interview. In principle, Pavel, do you think the Ukraine crisis ought to be so high on the agenda at this year's UN General Assembly?
5: Well, I believe so. Although, of course, there are other serious problems and crises happening Like right now. There's a flare-up in um, the Transcaucasian Karabakh. So uh, maybe Ukraine is occupying a bit too much. But of course, it's a very dangerous conflict uh, with its from um, the possibility of theoretically going nuclear. It should be on the world agenda before there's a and a solution should be found, a peaceful solution.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. That was Pavel Feigenhauer, a Moscow-based independent political analyst. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Dinghan in Beijing. Azerbaijan has launched a military operation in the disputed mountainous area of Nagorno-Karabakh calling it an anti-terror measure. Baku claims that the operation won't stop until the region's ethnic Armenians surrender. Tensions in the South Caucasus have been high for months over this particular region. Azerbaijan and Armenia first went into war in the early 1990s after the fall of the former Soviet Union, which ended with a ceasefire in 1994. And then a new round of armed conflict broke out along the contact line in the year 2020 before Russia brokered a a truce. So joining us now on the line is Dr. Wang Jing, Associate Professor with Northwest University in Xi'an, China. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. So some observers say Azerbaijan launched this latest operation, military operation, simulate to retake the Armenian-populated Karabakh in its entirety. What is your observation?
6: Uh, well, it is very possible because, uh, as you mentioned, there was a deal brokered by uh, uh, Russia uh, in 2020, and, and this is a kind of the temporary truth. But, uh, during the, although the temporary truth, but during the past uh, two or three years, the Azerbaijan still uh, stood as still stands at the very upper hand uh, of the battlefield, while the Armenians uh, they are as a very weaker side of the of the military uh, battleground. So when uh, so if the, uh, if they really I mean according to the to rhetorics uh, from the Azerbaijan that uh, the Armenian really uh, shot first. Uh, i mean this is very it will be very easy for the Amer- azerbaijan military forces to uh, re- to control this situation but now what we are uh, looking at uh, what what we can find in the battlefield is that the very large waves of military operations taken by azerbaijan military forces well the armenian military forces they kept the rational and they some especially they withdraw from some parts of the areas that they once controlled so uh this might be a very very important step taken by Azerbaijan to further take more territory uh, in the disputed uh, Nagorno Karabakh region, as well as a very, very major step taken by Azerbaijan to control more people, especially the the, the areas uh, that uh, the Azerbaijan mm-hmm. people mo- most populated.
2: Yeah. So because this 2020 was brokered and then monitored by Russia, um, so, with that in mind, how would you how do you think Russia's um, ongoing military operation in Ukraine has played a role in the outbreak of this latest conflict in the Nagorno Karabakh this time?
3: I think
6: it's actually the the the, the Russian military forces uh, military operation in yeah, Azerbaijan actually weakened, uh, it strongly weakens Russia's uh, influence and uh, Russians capabilities in, uh, in in its roles uh mm. that mediation for the for the conflict between azerbaijan and armenia because before that russia uh, uh, and uh, the war between russia and the ukraine outbreak outbreak uh, last year uh, a lot of opinion believe that russia is still the very still the most important key players in this region and still has the capabilities to uh, control the region's situation still have the capabilities to deter Uh, further uh, challenges and uh, uncertainties in this region. But what we are looking at now is that uh, after uh, the the war uh, broke out between Russia and uh, Ukraine, on the one hand, uh, Russian military forces, they they actually the military presence in this region are largely weakened and a lot of forces are uh, are transferred into the battlefield with with Ukraine. And on the other hand, I mean, uh, it's kind of a stalemate in the in the battleground between russia and the ukraine uh, actually for for more than one year, so that makes a lot of uh, other neighboring countries to uh, might have started to think okay russia is not that strong that it wants to show uh, that uh, we are it may we might be able to challenge the the, the areas that russia uh, once controlled and once claimed to control so that's become the more that, that led to more and more uncertainty in the region especially in the areas that disputed between mm. and Karab- uh, between uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia
2: yeah so based on what you have uh, elaborated I guess one particular issue we need to talk about here is really this relationship between Armenian and Russia uh, they are traditional allies and for decades actually Russia has acted as the only security guarantor for for Armenia but recently there have been some signs that their relations are worsening for, for example, this particular week, some Armenian soldiers have been taking part in military drills with U.S. forces. Basically, U.S. forces arrived in Armenia for this particular military exercise, and the Armenian parliament is set to ratify a statute of the International Criminal Court, meaning that Armenia in the future will be obliged to arrest Russian President Vladimir Putin if Putin was to, you know, set his foot in this country. So what do you think is really behind the worsening of their relations? And does that mean that there is less incentive now for on the part of the Russians to help maintain peace between Armenia and Azerbaijan?
6: Uh, I think I think we can't, we are not able to. Uh, this, frankly speaking, Russia is important in this region, but uh, especially during the past year, we are not able to uh, uh, to claim too strongly about Russia's influence, as We just mentioned, and on the other hand, uh, and the, the relations between Armenian uh, towards Aserba- uh, towards Russia is always uh, full of uh, uncertainties, especially during the past years, uh, even before the Azerbaijan Armenian war broke out in 2020, because. Uh, some, of uh, the uh, the, various, uh, the the political elites uh, and also uh, most of the people in Armenia, they still believe that Russia is a very important neighbor, is very important, uh, as you mentioned, uh, the original guarantee of the security. But uh, many others, that once they, they believe that they should find new partners, especially uh, gain the support and assistance from the United States. Uh, so that, on the one hand, led to the Russians uh, watching standby, in the, in the, at the very beginning stage of the wars in, in, in Nagorno Karabakh between Armenia and Azerbaijan, that also led to the Armenian, Armenian forces a defeat. And on the other hand, uh, recently, especially recently, the, the economic situation inside Armenia is not so good. And also a lot of uh, disputes and uh, protests emerged. So that led to more uh, rethinking of whether the Armenians should change their foreign policy. So that led to the further problem between Armenian and uh, Russian. So I think in the future, this uh, similar problem will arise once and once again. Uh, so that might be another kind of a, a uncertainty in its region.
2: Mm. So we understand Turkey has been a strong backer of um, Azerbaijan, with President uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan saying he supports the slightest military operation against Nagorno-Karabakh. On the other hand, both Russia's foreign ministry and U.S. uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken have called on Azerbaijan's uh, president to exercise restraint, uh, to stop the military operation immediately. So how how would you make of this picture of divergence between Turkey, Russia, and, uh, and the United States?
6: Uh, I think the uh, United States uh, is trying to intervene uh, the internal affairs between Azerbaijan and Armenians in the Caucasus region. Uh, because for the United States, it's a very important opportunity to uh, to, in, to further intervene the inter, uh, internal affairs of the Russia. So they want, they want to play a role. And also, Russia was uh, traditionally has already been uh, the very dominant, played a very dominant role in this region for for, for 100 or even 200 years. But uh, during the past decade, they were a new player, especially from Turkey. Uh, because Turkey has a very strong connections, were well, close connections with uh, uh, Azerbaijan, and also on the other hand, cause he also the, the Turkey also expressed a very very firm stance, uh, very aggressive, even assertive uh, stance uh, towards the Armenians because the Armenians and Turkey yeah. they have historical problems, huh? and also, yeah realistic problem. So that's why I think in the future the three countries will uh, their their relations between Turkey, Russia, and the United States will highly. Uh, significantly influence in the directions of the, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh in the future.
2: Mm, uh, that's a very interesting lens to look at this particular issue. So ultimately, can there be a good solution to the tensions surrounding Nagorno-Karabakh?
6: Uh, well, I, I think unfortunately, it is, is well, it's always been uh, difficult to find solutions to any territorial uh, problem, especially we are living in a territorial nation-state uh yeah. the, Time, yeah. So it's very difficult for any state to give up some kind of territory in the exchange of peace with the other neighbors. But uh, I think that maybe the best solution right now is to get to, to just sit down and talk and keep the the peace in the frontiers. I think that might be the most, uh, I mean, excellent or the most uh, the best solution for the related parties right now.
2: Mm, let's just hope for the best that peace and stability will be restored as soon as possible. But thank you very much for joining us and for your analysis. That was Dr. Wang Jing, Associate Professor with Northwest University in Xi'an, China. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back.
6: Hello, my name is Alessandro golombievsky Teixeira. I'm a Professor of Public Policy Management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a
2: great listener of The World Today. In my opinion, The World Today is one of the best China radio programs. In The World Today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please, come to join us. Eurozone inflation came in slightly lower than expected for August at 5.2%. That's down a little from July, but still higher than the ECB's target of 2%. Denmark, Spain, and Belgium recorded the lowest inflation rates, coming in below 2.5%. Hungary had recorded the highest inflation rates in the eurozone at 15%. Services, food, industrial goods, and energy contributed most to the August inflation. To delve deeper into the eurozone economy, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Dr. Wan Dan, chief economist with Hansen Bank China.
4: So then let's start with the inflation in the eurozone, slightly lower than expected and still stubbornly above the ECB's target. So how do you explain the reasons behind and what's the trend do you see?
0: On the latest data is from August, uh, the highest contribution we can see to the total inflation is mostly from services followed by food, uh, alcohol and tobacco, and non-energy industrial goods. Uh, for energy, actually, the price contribution is relatively low. So overall, we think this is a persistent phenomenon rather than a short term because the energy shock really hasn't been over yet. And the domestic labor market has been quite tight. We have seen widespread wage increase in most of the uh, industrial countries in Europe, and this seems to be strengthened actually in recent months just because the labor unions um their their strength has been increased actually after COVID.
4: Mm. And you mentioned the energy prices, because the oil prices tend to fuel the inflation. And I'm looking at them surging to the 10-month high. The benchmark crude oil prices reached $95 U S per barrel this week. So some say it will go even up to $100. What would that mean for the inflation picture and everything else?
0: Uh, Oil price is affected by the international demand and supply. And this year, there is a number of factors contributing to where we are. There's uh, the OPEC uh, cutting the supply of oil. There's the China's recovery from the pandemic lockdowns. And there's also the better than expected, the U.S. economy. And those three things combined, and people have various estimates, but usually consider them contributing more than 40 percent of the rise in the crude prices since June. And the rising crude prices could directly impact consumers through higher prices at the gas pump. Um, And because of that, we also see higher cost for transportation and tourism. And it can also persist for quite a while. Mm, So my next
4: question is, can the ECB control this high inflation with the monetary policy? I mean, the uh, interest rates actions alone.
0: If we're talking about their policy tools, the immediate policy that any central bank would think of is to increase interest rates. The ECB and the Federal Reserve has been sticking to it and so far it has worked. But one thing they cannot control is the wage inflation, uh, which is clearly tied with some change in social movement. Um, By wage inflation, I mean, part of it is from, of course, uh, the recovery uh, post-COVID. But also it's due to the increased inequality in both markets. The blue-collar workers demand higher wage. Uh, In many cases, they deserve so. But the problem is in the current situation, uh, no government can just see the wage inflation go spiraling up like this because they are facing a global competition. If you cannot control the cost, most of the domestic industries, including services and manufacturing, will be jeopardized in the long run.
4: Mm -hmm. And talking more about the monetary policy, we've got the U.S. Federal Reserve meeting, and they will make their announcement later this week, and also the UK's Bank of England. So are they going to hold steady, or what do you expect for their monetary policy?
0: Um, There seems to be a consensus, among the Federal Reserve officials that holding uh, interest rates steady this month is the right move and the market buys it. Uh, We believe that the Fed is all about expectation management. And so far they they have never given a surprise uh, in their decision of uh, holding the rate steady or raising the rates. So it's very likely this week we don't see any uh, any rate hike, um, but it's uh, there's also a voice talking about maybe they will lower the interest rate because the inflation pressure is down, and that is also highly likely given that um, the domestic inflation is still way above two percent, but for the Bank of England the job is quite different. If we uh, if we look at uh, all the developed economies. Um, UK's inflation is the one that we can describe as out of control. The domestic food inflation, energy inflation, and um, plus wage have all been exceedingly high um, based on where the economy is right now. Um, so their central bank has to raise the, raise the rates and they have to do so quickly.
4: And breaking down those Eurozone figures, and it also reveals that uh, there are wide differences within the Eurozone, the block. Hungary currently has the highest inflation rate with a 15% rise year on year, and that is compared to around 2.5% in Spain and Belgium. So tell us more about that. What happened over there?
0: Um. Within the eurozone, the policies during COVID were actually very similar. They differ in the magnitude. So for uh, the different uh, European countries, uh, Turkey was the most aggressive one in their monetary and fiscal expansion. And Hungary was number two. And three years later, we saw we now see the result of that kind of expansion in the in the central bank's balance sheet, and also Hungary they had an election last year, so that sort of boosted their uh, incentive to give more subsidies and fiscal expansion, uh, infrastructure spending f- uh, before the election happened. And for their policymakers, now it's quite difficult to reverse that trend. There's the inertia. On this kind of subsidy, uh, once you hand out subsidies, then you cannot really roll it back. Uh, once the wage expectation is set in, it doesn't matter how high your interest rate is or how keen you're willing to set the price, uh, the price ceiling, and they're just going to stay high. But in Spain and in Belgium. Uh, they were relatively contained in their handing out cash to families and also in their subsidies to companies. So that's the main difference.
4: And how about Germany, Europe's largest economy? It's actually predicted to post a 0.4% fall in the economic activity this year. So how much of a concern is the German economy, do you think?
0: Um, German economy has been under huge pressure uh, this year. And it has a lot to do with their economic structure. It used to be Germany's biggest strength, and now it's also their biggest vulnerability. Um, a month ago, The Economist published this article calling Germany as the sick man in Europe. Uh, it certainly looks so, because their domestic inflation is high, um, but the job market is not that friendly, actually, to blue-collar workers the energy price is way too high for many of uh, the jobs to sustain in, Germ- in Germany. Uh, one interesting case that we noticed is the company uh, BASF. Uh, B-A-S-F. Uh, so it actually relocated one uh, major um, production line to China. In uh, the, the, the work started two years ago, but now it's basically finished. And the reason is that they couldn't afford the high price of gas in Germany, and they had to relocate to somewhere else. And China is the most cost-effective place. And for Germans, other auto industry or auto parts industry makers, they face similar situation. Um, The wage, uh, the local wage are actually not that high. Uh, The business sentiment is rather pessimistic.
2: Dr. Wan Dan, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China, talking to my colleague Zhao Yang. You are listening to World Today. Stay tuned. You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. In the UK, the Parliament has passed a new law with an aim to make social media companies more accountable for user safety on their platforms. The online safety bill has taken years to agree. It will require companies to remove illegal content and protect children from some legal yet harmful materials. The nearly 300-page bill will introduce new regulations like requiring pornography sites to stop children viewing content by checking on the ages of users. New offenses have also been included, such as cyber flashing and sharing of deepfake pornography. So joining us now on, on the line from London is Duncan Bartlett, former BBC correspondent. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Good to speak with you again.
2: So the legislation work surrounding this particular piece of bill began actually six years ago when the government of the UK committed to the idea of improving internet safety. So why has this bill taken such a lengthy journey to becoming a law?
1: Well, you're absolutely right. It has taken a long time for it to become legislation. But there's been a very lively debate here in the UK about how we can make the internet less dangerous for users, and particularly for young people. So at the end of that debate, what happened is that the laws have been introduced, which say to the social media companies, two things. First of all, you need to watch very carefully what's on your sites. You must remove any illegal content and you must remove harmful content that isn't necessarily illegal. So, for example, if people are being incited to self-harm or suicide or something like that, that could be described as harmful content. And the second thing, which you alluded to, is to try to prevent children seeing uh, inappropriate material. And that's why there'll be a lot more age verification, particularly for people who want to use adult pornography websites. They'll have to prove that they're over the age of 18
3: before they can look at any material like that.
2: Mm. So this particular act we are talking about now is often... Uh, talk about In Your Country as a tool for reining in big tech, but actually UK government figures have suggested that more than 20,000 small businesses in your country will also need to comply with this particular new law. So in your observation, uh, do you think this law is welcomed by the social media related business community in your country?
1: The big social media companies are not very happy about it, but they've accepted it as uh, on the basis that it will allow them to continue. Small social media businesses and companies that operate through social media have raised many questions about it. For example, they say, well, if you say you want to remove harmful content on our platforms or amongst our discussion forums, what happens if somebody is making a joke, for example? They say, oh, well, Let's blow up the Houses of Parliament in the middle of London. Ha, ha, ha. Would you think that that was a terrorist comment, or would you say, we recognize that that was a joke? And uh, This places a lot of responsibility on the people who are moderating uh, the online platforms and discussions. The other related issue is what about private communication, uh, perhaps, for example, using WhatsApp messages. Mm. Now, at the moment, you can uh, communicate with somebody using end-to-end Encryption and uh, WhatsApp can't see what you said, and there's no record of it. So, one of the very difficult parts of uh, the discussion on how to uh, regulate the way people communicate online has been to decide well, what's the limits of freedom of speech here? If we're going to be uh, checking if somebody is going to be uh, planning a crime surely we should have access to uh, the conversations that they're having and pass that on to the law enforcement authorities. It's not an easy one. And I think this goes back to what you were saying at the start. Why did it take so long? Uh, The other question is, why is it 300 pages long? And and that's because this is a very complex and rapidly evolving area, isn't it?
2: Mm. So in the UK, how often do you read or hear real-life cases or stories where... Uh, individuals suffer from losses or harms due to the content posted on social media platforms?
1: One of the organizations which has been particularly vocal in its support of tough legislation on the way in which the Internet is is monitored is the National Society for the Protection of Children. And they have given this conservative government uh, a loud endorsement getting this through they thought at one stage actually it wasn't going to get through uh, parliament but but they've been very very vocal and say this is a very good idea another organization which is the samaritans which tries to uh, prevent people committing suicide also welcomes this because the idea again is that harmful content will be hard to access now of course you can't prevent other people you can't prevent people perhaps using vpns and things and accessing uh, the internet uh, through, um, you know, using other domains ab- apart from the UK, but this will just put an extra um, series of hurdles in the way uh, uh, of people before they um, uh, actually c- engage with uh, this this illegal or, or harmful material online.
2: Mm. So, Duncan, we still have about one minute or so for this discussion with you today. I mean, looking beyond the UK, different national governments have, of course, taken different approaches in terms of cracking down on harmful content online or social media. But on the other hand, do you see a trend that ultimately there is convergence rather than divergence between different approaches taken by different governments?
1: I think there is still quite a big difference in the way uh, the governments in uh, the Great Britain and the European countries approach this issue to to some other countries. Uh, And and that's because of the principle of of freedom of speech. So what the government has been trying to do is to prevent harmful and illegal content, but not actually uh, prevent people from expressing their views on a range of different issues uh, without feeling that they might be... uh, getting into
2: trouble with the regulator of the law. Thank you very much, Duncan, uh, for joining us and for providing us with a UK perspective about this particular UK issue. That was uh, Duncan Butlett, uh former BBC correspondent, joining us from London. Unfortunately, that's all the time for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on our previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today for more, you can follow us on X at CGTN Radio. I'm Ding in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.